0: And from Race of the One Light, weekly commentaries of the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Week 25, the eternal and the now. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. When will I find God? Many devotees have asked this question. Because worldly goals require time, usually, for their fulfillment. We imagine time to be a factor of the spiritual path. And so it is, but only because we think it is. God is as much as with us now as he will ever be. It is not he who needs to come to us. We need to come to him. And that process of coming is a matter of transforming our perception. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 4, Jesus Christ says, Say no, ye, there are ye yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. There is a practical teaching in these words, apart from the statement that we have got already. I have only realized that truth. Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes and look. To behold the eyes uplifted is the best position for meditation. For the seat of superconsciousness lies at that point midway between the eyebrows in the frontal lobe of the brain, just behind that point. This point is also known as the Christ Center, By lifting up your your eyes and concentrating there, you will find it easier to enter the state of ecstasy. That is why saints in every religion have often been observed during states of deep inner communion with their eyes lifted, focused on the inner light. White, as Jesus said, or ready to harvest. The Bhagavad Gita goes further into the meditative teaching. In the sixth chapter, he states, holding the spine firm, the neck and head erect, and motionless, let the yogi focus his eyes at the starting place of the nose, the point between the eyebrows. Let not his gaze roam elsewhere. In meditation, tell yourself, I have him, I have him already. I'm alive forever in the divine light. Thus, through holy scripture, God has spoken to mankind. oh, oh, Good
1: morning, great souls. It's our pleasure to be here with you for Sunday service. My name is Atma, and this is Bhakti Marg. We both serve here at Ananda Village, and it's our joy to share. So let's begin with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Yogananda's book of divine prayer demands. This is one demand to find God at any time, anywhere. Teach me, O Father, to find Thee in the cave of my heart, that I may walk with Thee everywhere. Teach me to hear Thee in silence, that I may hear Thy voice beneath outer noises. Teach me to find Thee in inner peace, that I may be with Thee calmly in the midst of outer tumult. Hubbub or silence, tumult or peace, I care not, so long as Thou wilt teach me to find Thee anywhere, at any time. So God is omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal, always with us. There's no space. There's no time. We're sparks of that divine, the immortal Atman, soul, nature is in all of us. All we have to do is change our self-perception, as as, uh, the reading says. So it's easy, right? You can just parrot these concepts in a encyclopedic way of defining the spiritual path. And we can intellectually know this. It's really heady stuff, except that it doesn't work just with the head. Just heady stuff doesn't cut it. So what do we have to do? We have to actually somehow experience this. We have to make that effort to get to that sense where we are living in the eternal divine. And as the reading says, the best way to do that is of course through meditation. It's bringing the energy upward, focusing at the spiritual eye, feeling that we are connecting that oneness with the divine. And it's the the ego that we're really up against here. The ego is this bundles of self-definitions. It's these forces that actually never sleeps. It's always there creating these ramparts of protection of our false individuality. And it's meditation can actually send some rockets of divine perception to break down some of those ramparts. And that's why it's important to keep meditating all the time because the ego is always there reconstructing the ramparts, but our meditation can keep sending those salvos into it break open some of those ramparts and those self-definitions. But we talk a lot about meditation, a lot of our services are about that. I wanted to focus on another part of that, and that is the the attitudes, the experiences, the way we go about life outside of our meditation room, and how that can help us to experience this eternal presence of the divine. I want to touch on uh, a few things that I recently had the experience to realize in my life. I had had the good fortune recently of taking a trip to India and going on a sort of a pilgrimage in various ways doing various things. Some good friends of mine asked if I wanted to join them and I did and there were a number of experiences. It was actually a very profound trip for me but In thinking about the topic for today, I realized that many of the things that I came to a deeper understanding or that I realized related to what we're talking about today. And I think even though it was my karma and my experiences and my trip to India, I think there's some universal experiences there, some universal teachings that we can all tune into to help us get closer to that eternal now. there's a, a couple aspects that we need to keep in mind. And that's what we're really talking about here is consciousness. And our goal, of course, is to raise that consciousness, expand that consciousness until we're identified with that divine. But unfortunately, a lot of the times, our consciousness isn't necessarily there, and we, we have this sort of level that we float at, our consciousness. And Swami called it in his book, Education for Life, as he was talking about dealing with children, he called it the specific gravity of consciousness. There's, there's generally a, a weight or a level where we float at. You know, it's, sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's higher, but there's, there's sort of this general average level. That's our specific gravel, gravity of consciousness. And we want to raise that. The spiritual path is to gradually Keep raising that. But there's also the ups and downs, and it's these ups and downs which we can focus on which are really important. So the ups are when we're actually closer to the divine, when we're, those veils part a little bit, when we can touch Divine Mother's hem. And those experiences come to all of us. It's not always samadhi. It's rarely samadhi, oneness. But we all have those times when we're, we're moving upward. And these are very important. It can also be important, the times when we're down. Because if we have enough realization, enough focus, those can be very important things too, to very important moments to bring us back to our practices of the divine. So what are some of these things that, that uh, we can focus on? The first one is just be glad you're on the spiritual path and don't ever forget that. And realize that you have this intention to find God. You know you're not happy where you are and there's this intention to always be looking for the divine, always be looking for that communion, always trying to do that. And of course, going to India, I was trying to leave behind a a point of a sort of a weighty point in my life i was feeling a little bit of weight from astrological from the pandemic from having done the same job for the last 20 years there was just a little weightiness and i needed a, a little bit of reset so i went on this pilgrimage with the intention of breaking out of this of trying to commune more with that divine flow and so that was there in my forefront and I'm on the plane and I get there and I arrive in Mumbai and India and in the middle of the night, of course, and arriving about the same time as six or seven or eight other huge jets full of people, because that's the time when the European and American flights arrive in India. And so you walk into this giant immigration hall, which is a lot like immigration halls other places, except this is India. And not only... Are they not known for their uh, ability to queue up in an orderly fashion and direct people in an orderly way? They had just changed a lot of the rules about visas. And there was, you know, it had been shut for a long time, and then they opened it, but not all the usual visas. And there were new kinds of visas, and there were COVID regulations, and you were supposed to be registering things online, and there was all these papers. Even though you registered online, you had to show the paper. And so it it was interesting. And we get in there, and there, you know, of course, there's all these little barriers and things to kind of direct you in the right place, only these barriers were a little bit like um, the maze in an in a English garden. Some of them were dead ends, like, <laughs> like you'd go down one, and you couldn't get there, and so you have to duck under there. And then there's this group that's going over here, and you're wondering, should I go over there? And Anyway, it could easily... Uh, evolve into something where your consciousness might go, Oh my God, this is absurd. What is going on here? You get anxious about this. Am I going to get in? Am I going to do this? But I said, No. I'm here on pilgrimage. I'm here with the divine. You just got to relax because this is what it is. And then you start seeing the humor in it. So if you can have that intention of just keeping that connection, And then also just see the absurdity. See the humor in this play that's going on all around us. And it's not just the immigration lines in India. It's all our our lives. There's always chaotic things going on. There's always absurd things going on. So that was the first lesson. Next thing was, so we're in Mumbai. And Mumbai is a rather large city. It's It's the center of financial center, the entertainment center, sort of the the happening place of India. And like many of the mega cities of India, it's been drawing population for, for the last decades. And more and more people are crowding in there for opportunity. And right now, there's about um, 22 million people that live there in 223 square miles. So there's a lot of people. And it's a fact of India, there's a lot of people. But in Mumbai, there's a really a lot of people everywhere. And When you go around in the city in Mumbai, especially if you're a country boy used to living in Nevada City in the foothills here, it's a sensory assault. And this is an important point. Our senses are what tends to draw us out and to get us into trouble and to get us more into these identifications with these egoic ramparts. And we have to withdraw our senses. Well, that's an important thing on the spiritual path. But in India, it's actually a matter of survival you have to withdraw your senses and so i had the experience of you know this noise okay i can overcome that this the smell the pollution the the heat the the just the general sensory o- visual overload of all these different people and just to give you a sense of what what i'm talking about a lot of people so if you took the density of mumbai so there's about 223 square miles for. 21 million people, or 22, that's about 89,000 people per square mile. Well, Ananda village is about 1.1 square miles. So if you took the population density of Mumbai and transplanted it onto Ananda village, there would be 99,000 people living at Ananda village. <laughs> that's the entire population of Nevada County at Ananda village. So. You got to withdraw a little from this or you don't survive. It's a, you know, it's a, you can get tired very easily. It's a fatiguing experience and, you know, you have to just work on it. But amazingly, by the end of my time in India, I had this realization, I had, you know, for me it's like, okay, we're going outside, you got to put out this energy because I got to deal with this sensory overload. But by the end of the time, it was normal and i realized that for people living in india it's normal and they just they just live that way and it's fine they've they've monitored their senses enough or have come gotten used to it or gotten deadened enough but you can do it and the important thing is no matter where we are be aware of what's coming in from your senses be aware and know that yes you can control that you can cut it off you can Modify it. How do you do that? You try to stay centered. I mean, believe me, when I was running around the streets of Mumbai, I was chanting a lot of om guru, om guru, om guru, om guru, and trying to stay in that center and, and taking respite sometimes in quiet places. But anyway, withdraw the senses. So another thing that I learned very quickly is that expectations play a lot a big role in our lives. And we've got these round parts of the ego has constructed all these things. And we have all these filters. And the way we categorize reality and we make sense of what's going on around us and what this person is and that person, what should happen, and how this should go. Expectations. Well, one of the nice things about putting yourself in another environment where you can Take a look at some of these things to break down some of these things that you're not necessarily aware of because we have a nice quiet little expectations going on here and it's just what it is. It's our reality. But transfer that into some other reality or put yourself into something, a situation that breaks down and you realize how much your ego is trying to tell you stories. They're trying to make sense of what's going on out there. It's taking all these things in and it's categorizing it. Okay, this is what's happening, this is what's going to happen, this is what happened, and here's here we're, we're just going forward. Well, you get to India and you have no idea what's going on, but your ego is still trying to make up stories and still trying to make sense of all this, and it doesn't really work very well. And you realize that you're bringing a lot of baggage. You have a lot of expectations. And one of, these, one of the ways it came home to me is we, we went to some of the very large temples of India. We went to the Mahalakshmi temple in Mumbai, the, the Shiva temple in Tiruvannamalai. These are huge temples, centers of devotional worship for the Hindu religion for millennia. And you know, great spiritual centers. Say, so, OK, great. Yeah, let's go to the Lakshmi temple. Let's go to Tiruvannamalai. And, and you get in there and again you're still in India so you know there's still sensory overload it's hot it's crowded you've got your little plate of offerings and you're trying to tune in it's okay divine mother you know Lakshmi divine mother here you are you're doing this but Meanwhile there's people pushing you and you know there's this little rational voice that starts talking about COVID. You go what COVID? You know, there's nobody with masks here, there's nobody even coming close to social distancing and you're all just getting pushed it's, okay, okay, it's fine, I'm with God. Here we are. And you you get up, you have about two seconds in front of where the pujari is, where the, the main idol, and they take your offering and they, they throw it on the hot pile and they give you some things back. And they, then the policeman who's standing next to you <laughs> says, okay, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what am I doing here? How am I supposed to deal with this? And, you know, I'm trying. But the, the reality is, you know, there's many, many people there that you can see the devotion. You can see that that they're experiencing this. And that, that it's there is something here. And it's just, I haven't had the chance yet to tune into that. I haven't been able to get past my expectations. And so, expectations of a spiritual place being a quiet place where I can sit and meditate and feel the divine inspiration. Well, forget it. That's not what... That's not what temples in India are about. So I got to get over that expectation. So we go to the temple again in Tiruvannamalai. This one's—it's 20 hectares. I mean, it's like 20, 20 acres. A huge temple complex. We went in; it wasn't so crowded. But you know, we got there at the end of the day, and while we're going up in line, there's people with fire hoses, like you know, sh- <laughs> cleaning out the, the inner sanctums, and you're getting wet, and you know, sort of the same thing, but. I was a little better because I my expectations were different and I had a sense of acceptance and I actually accepted okay this is what it is I'm going to tune in the best I can divine mother it's up to you you know I mean I know I have all this western baggage about you know maybe I can't relate to hindu temples very well but you know it's up to you I know you're here I know shiva come to me so a little bit better experience so then this kept going. You know, I keep coming up against my expectations about what I'm supposed to be feeling here on Pilgrim, what the experience. But there's there's expectation, there's acceptance, and then there's a the last stage, which is embracing. So accepting, you still have these walls up of what's going on because okay, I accept what's out there, but it's still different from me. And you know, this happens in our daily life all the time. You can you can accept things going on, but you're You're still a little standoffish. You're not relating to it as part of you or these people around you as just other souls who you share this oneness with. And at some point, you just have to come to embracing it. And I'm happy to say that later on in my journey in India, I was able to just embrace it much more. And I had some very profound experiences of, of just feeling just just being in the flow, just feeling what was happening with other people there. A lot of it was, you know, in my de- rational definitions, it was chaotic, it was ridiculous, but you could just embrace it. I mean, I took a bus, I was up in the Himalayas at uh, one of the higher stations, and I had to take a bus back to Rishikesh. It was, it was an eight-hour bus ride. and. I didn't know where the bus was, and I finally asked somebody, and they took me into this little stall. And this guy scribbled a thing on a piece of paper and said, OK, here's your bus ticket. It leaves at 6 in the morning. Be here. I said, OK, I got a bus ticket. So I get there at 6 in the morning, and here's this bus. And you know, there's various classes of buses. And the class of this bus, I should have known by the amount I paid for the ticket. This was an eight-hour bus ride that I paid a little under $3 for. So, <laughs> So here's the bus, and you know it's not exactly luxury reclining seatings. There's no air conditioning. This is a this is a basic state bus, and people get on and off in the whole way. But I was in at that point in such a state of connection with the divine, it didn't matter at all. And they don't oh by the way they don't make bus seats for people who are six five in India. I mean, it's, it's rare that people are six five, and so you know you're kind of chewing on your knees and but. It was a blissful ride. I just, you know, I just watched people flowing in and out of the bus and as you're descending the Ganga and you know, the Himalayas. And you know, I just kept thinking of uh, Master's words in his chant. He said, you know, whither do they come from? Whither do they slip away? Take the dust from each one's feet, serving mother where she sleeps. And you, know, just, you just felt that, that flow coming through there. So it is possible to get beyond those expectations and acceptance and just really embrace what it is we're doing here. So another thing that happened is we spent, one of the reasons for going was we were, um, I was going with my friend Casey, who's a meditation leader in in Encinitas with his wife Anka. And he's been trying to manifest this uh, temple to Yogananda on the ghats of Varanasi. So we spent a lot of our time in Varanasi. And one of the lessons of Varanasi was that it's important having reminders of the divine. Now, Varanasi is a divine city that's been a center of spirituality for for at least 3,000 years. And it's the, a city of Shiva, a city of Kashi. And there's, there's 420 major Shiva temples in, in Varanasi. And then every single part of the old city, there is some sort of a temple or shrine or Something to the divine, and Shiva isn't something that we, in our spiritual path, we normally relate to that much. It's not something that Master uh, talked about a lot. We're much more tuned into the Guru or to the Divine Mother, but Shiva was omnipresent there, and so. I just started tuning in and said, you know, what is Shiva? What is this? And we would in the morning we would go to this place where we were trying to manifest this temple where there was a Shiva Lingam and we would do a Shiva puja. And those openings to the divine, those channels, those those portals are really important. And there's been a lot of people who have been opening a portal to the divine in the aspect of Shiva for a really long time. And that energy, you can tune into it. And so the same thing here with, with Master, with the Divine Mother. There are these portals, these waves that we can tune in. And I had some actually some very profound experiences in meditation of, of coming to my own understanding of, you know, what's the Shiva Lingam? What's, the, what's this representing, you know, light, the spine, the, you know, the movement, the inner Atman? And so those portals are important and reminders of the Divine they're only important if you don't forget that they're reminders of the divine. So you come to a place like this, there's pictures of the masters, there's statues. Do we see them every day? Not necessarily. I, had to re- I realized that when I got to India, and where there, there's, there's a symbol of the divine every 10 feet in Varanasi, and there you can't escape it. So try to bring that back to our life here. Put those symbols of those portals that speak to you, that you can tune into, and keep tuning into that, keep going there. So another thing I learned in Varanasi was that as much as the techniques, as much as all this, what we're doing with meditation, that devotional aspect is critical. And the reason I came to this realization is we would we were trying to energize this little spot on the, the steps of Varana, on the steps down to the river of Varanasi near Mani Karnikaga. And it's a long story, which I'm not going to get into. The good news is it's the project's still moving forward. We may actually be able to manifest at some point a shrine to our masters there in Varanasi. But to do that, we would go every morning to this, this place, which a pundit had directed Casey and said, why don't you build a shrine to your guru here? And that's what started this whole process. But this place, is a, it was a somewhat run-down part of the guts. There was a little niche with uh, some shiva lingams and some mortis and some steps and, but and some crumbling walls. And it was, you know, it was a part that was a little bit in disrepair, which is part of the reason for doing this project. So we decided we're going to energize this space. So we go there every morning, and because there's shiva lingam there, we bring flowers, we do puja, we set up a little altar, we have our harmonium, we're chanting. But this isn't exactly the same as meditating at the Expanding Light or Ananda Village or even your own meditation room. Again, this is India. This is a public space. These are the ghats of Varanasi. Everything is happening there. So the first thing we'd have to do when we get there is clean up the trash from the night before. First day, we cleaned up a lot of trash, but there was this other level up above us. And evidently, in the evenings, people would, you know, that's where they dispose of their trash. So where we had our altar, you come in, and you have to pick up all the trash. And then, you know, there's other people there. There'd be people who slept there at night. There's people who had their cigarette butts there. You know, it was a somewhat, abandoned place. There was a dog who liked to live back in underneath one of these things in the things he found a nice cool spot so the dog would join us. And then uh, then there's all these other pilgrims coming because this is a major pilgrimage space of India and so boatloads of pilgrims coming. Very few westerners at this time but lots of Indians still visiting. and So 40 or 50 people in a boat would come, and there was a place sort of right in front of where we were, they could land the boat, and then there were some places off to the side that were shaded. And again, the, the sense of personal space in India is a little different than the United States. You have some expectations people are going to give you a little space. Well, that's not their expectation at all, and everybody's just doing their own thing. And fortunately, it's a devotional thing, and it's really nice, and it's a really sweet energy. but. You know we, would have the, we' were sort of up on this platform. we leave our shoes down here. At one point, this group of 40 pilgrims moved in and they moved our shoes and put us aside and so they could sit right here, and then they do their puja. and they have these pujaris who lead them in this devotional worship. and it's very sweet, except that you know sometimes it's not necessarily our way of doing it. We're, we're here chanting away, and this pujari gets on a bullhorn. Which is one of these my, megaphones, my, amplified megaphone, and he's telling them what to do. Of course, in Hindi, so it wasn't, we couldn't really hear what was going on, so it wasn't that disruptive. But, but it was, let's just say, it wasn't what we typically think as, as a sattvic meditative environment. But this was our morning sadhana. And what I realized after a while, after the first days, I'm going, oh my God, you know, there's no quiet. I mean, you know, earplugs, forget it, that doesn't really do much because there's. You know, there's the smells, there's the heat, there's flies. At one point, at one point I decided that flies in India weren't as bothersome as they were in the United States because there were so many and I wasn't being bothered. But <laughs> but believe me, they're the same flies. So there were flies there. But gradually we had a very it was a very deep experience. We had this, we were left with this wonderful feeling there, this wonderful connection to the Divine. And it wasn't because I did 108 perfect Kriyas in silence and could feel the things. It was because that devotion was there, that intention, that bringing that that energy here. We're just trying to magnetize this, we're trying to bring Divine Mother, we're trying to bring that eternal presence of God into our lives. And it worked. And it wasn't just because of the meditation techniques, because Believe me, it was again, it was fairly chaotic there. So then, from there, um, we finished in Varanasi, and I decided that I wanted to go I wanted to stay some more time, and there was, I was able to extend my visa through a pfft, interesting process. Like first, it was only a 30-day visa, but then they opened it up so you could go to the visas, which were longer term, which I had. And you'd think it'd be easy enough to just switch, but of course it's not. So I ended up going to Kathmandu and then coming back and then taking a pilgrimage in the Himalayas by myself. So Casey and Anka had gone home, and I just decided, okay, Divine Mother, we're going to the Himalayas because this is what inspires me. And I didn't have a guide. I didn't really have any hotel or transportation or restaurant reservations. I had a general idea of where I was going, but it was just me with the Divine Mother, with Shiva, with the Masters, saying we're going on pilgrimage, and it was actually a very profound experience. Being alone was different than being with other people. I mean, it was really nice to have Casey and Anka there, who were helping me through some of these things and helping me, you know, help keep that vibration. But later in the trip, you know, I was just by myself, and it was just just me and the Divine Mother and me and Shiva, and it was. You had to rely on that because there was nobody else to complain to. You couldn't commiserate with anybody. You just had to keep giving it back up to the Divine Mother. And, you know, there was also never really a plan. So you just had to go with the flow. You had to be in the present moment. And you had to say, "Okay, this is what's happening. Most of the time, it worked out great. It was was wonderful. I had very nice experiences. Sometimes, you know, you're... Waiting for three hours for transport. And then when the transport comes, it's a shared taxi. And the next thing you know, you're sharing a vehicle the size of a Jeep Cherokee with 13 other people. And you know initially, that can be a shock. but when you accept and embrace it, you just, okay, maybe I can get the window seat and hang out my arm here because there's a lot of people on one little jeep. But you just it just flowed with it, and divine mother was there. There was one time especially where I just sort of really had to give it up. Generally, I didn't have much trouble uh, with my health. There was one time I had gotten sick. When I first got to the Himalayas, a little vomiting. I spent a day. I thought I was over it. Got to this other place. I'm ready to make this climb up into the Himalayas. So a 4,000 foot uh, hike up in about three miles, up to a beautiful view, a high temple. So I was really looking forward to this. And, so I decided, you know, I hadn't eaten that much, so I better keep eating. So all that afternoon, I'm eating things and trying to get my strength up. And then it got really cold, and there was a thunderstorm. And so I said, I better have some hot food. So I went in this in my little guest house, had a, some hot food, and I immediately got sick again. I lost everything, vomited, and I was just going, "Oh, Shiva, divine mother, what's going on here? You know, you're supposed to take care of your devotees. This is..." You know, this is going to be a highlight of the trip. Expectations. Okay, I accept this. You know, whatever you want. I can embrace the situation. And, you know, I got the guidance that said you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. So, you know, after having lost everything in my stomach, I had two chapatis and a cup of black tea. And at 4.30 in the morning, I set off on this trek up to the space. And it was one of the most beautiful pilgrimages I've been on. It was just I always had that sense that it wasn't my strength that was doing this, it was Divine Mother's. It was the strength of that aspect of Shiva lifting me up. And that's what it always is. We think it's our strength, but it's not. It's the Divine that's lifting us up. It's the Divine that's, that's doing it. And in this case, again, taking to a low point, you can realize that. You just have to give up. And then that Divine Grace, that Divine Mother came through, and. You know, lifted me up. It was—I uh, don't know how—I actually, you know, walked up 4,000 feet with having been sick, but I did, and it was blissful. So there you go. Well, I'm uh, running out of time here. So what I, there's many, many other instances and stories and things, but the the challenge has been hold on to those things, bring them back into daily life here. Because you get back into where your ego thinks it knows what's going on, it thinks that you're the doer, they're the doer, that you have responsibilities. And you've got to be able to touch back into that. So always keep that intention. Keep that intention, I am looking for the Divine. I am trying to commune with Divine Mother. I'm trying to make that connection. Be conscious of where your portals to the Divine are. What is it that lifts you up? What is it that brings you to that higher state of consciousness? What is it that draws your devotion? Focus on that. Go there. Don't forget it. Hold on to those experiences that are, that are profound. Because, you know, you have this, I had this... There were times when I'd have these moments of, of divine inspiration. Like we were at Ramana Maharshi's ashram. We went up to his cave. We meditated there, where he had done tapasya for many years. But it was COVID, and they were only letting people in the cave for 10 minutes at a time. Forget the fact that there was nobody there and there was nobody waiting to come in. It was, nope, sorry, that's the rules, 10 minutes. So, you know, we're in there, we have a blissful meditation. And it's like, okay, finally, it's quiet. I'm I'm communing with a great saint. Wonderful. And so I'm there, I've got this divine inspiration. 10 minutes, okay, you're out. Oh, come on. So then, you know, we stay in that meditative space, except we come out and we find that a monkey has stolen Casey's shoe. (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, right after our bliss, we're there, all right, got to look for the shoe. And, you know, we found the shoe, we made it back down, it was fine, but what I realized was is that even that little moment, you can hold on to. And isn't it true that there's always monkeys waiting outside our meditation room to just grab you as soon as you come out? Well, guess what? You can overcome that. You can get past those monkeys, and you will be able to carry on. So, find those points, hold on to those divine experiences, because time doesn't exist, you, space doesn't exist. You can always go back to that profound experience. You can always go back to that feeling, that oneness, that realization of what a Shiva Lingam is, that connection with the Master. You can go back to that connection with Divine Mother. Even if it was only that instant, you can tune into it again, if you remember it. And then, always have that sense of, what it is I'm doing, that devotional aspect. I'm here in this life. I am trying to find God. I am trying to realize that eternal oneness, which is all around me, all the time. I may not be there all the, every moment, but I have that intention at all times.
0: Long I've called.